You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. I believe they keep getting better. If you take your Bibles and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 2, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 12 through 16 this morning. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, there are notes provided in the bulletin. Uh, that have the scripture references and quotes and also a space uh, that you can fill in uh, to better retain the message. So uh, you won't offend us if you need to get to an exit or an entrance uh, and pick up those notes uh, if you don't have a bulletin. Um, also, if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the Version Bible app, that's Y-O-U version. After you download it, you can go to the More Tab Tap Events, Five Melt Carmel Baptist Church. And uh, once you click on that, you'll have all the notes, quotes, and references for today as well. And then if you're watching online, you can go to our website, mtcarmeldemarest.com forward slash notes. And you can download the notes that they're actually, they actually have in their bulletins today. So you can keep that with you. We All I ask is that you have an open Bible and an open mind and heart uh, when we study God's Word together. Romans chapter 2. I'll go ahead and tell you. I'm excited to get back into the book of Romans. I'm not going to lie. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. I want to preach to you this morning a sermon that I've entitled, A Telltale Heart. A Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe relates the story of a man who endeavors to cover up a murder that he has committed. The man's feelings result in hearing a thumping sound. And he interprets that thumping sound as the old man's beating heart. We all, you and I, have a telltale heart. We have feelings that thump loud when we've done wrong. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. And remember, before Paul became a Christian, he was a Jewish Pharisee and a persecutor of the Christian church. Only after the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul did Paul receive his commission to become apostle and thus the greatest Christian missionary to be on the face of the earth. When Jesus commissioned Paul, he commissioned Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Remember, Paul is a Jew himself. Now, in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles comprise the church, particularly the Roman church. And Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, the Roman church. He has not yet met any of the Christians there. He wants to alert them that he plans to visit, and he is going to ask for assistance on his missionary 
journey to Spain. And here's what I love about Paul. That's really the occasion for why he writes the letter. But in the meantime, he goes, can I rehearse the gospel for you one more time? Can I tell you the gospel one more time? And what he's especially going to relate to them is the relationship of the gospel Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. How does that work together? In Romans chapter 2 verse 11 where we left off months ago, right? The last verse we read was this. For there is no favoritism with God. God has no favorites. There's no person that's at an advantage or a disadvantage when it comes to knowing Him. Now why would Paul have to write to a Roman church that's comprised of Jews and Gentiles, trust me, there's no favoritism. You would think, we know God is fair. Why would he have to remind them that God is fair? And here's how the argument would have probably went in the Roman church. We, the Gentiles, did not have the Bible or the Old Testament Mosaic law. They didn't have it. They have not known it since birth. How can we know right from wrong and be accountable and judged by God? Everybody see what that's saying? We don't have the Bible. How are we held accountable? And then you have the Jews who said, well, we have the Bible. We have the Old Testament and Mosaic law. And that's because of our special covenant relationship with God. How could God keep us accountable? See, we're His favorites. So Paul is saying something that's really profound. There is no favoritism. Right? Now how is that the case? How are neither party exempt from accountability and God's judgment? That's what he's here to answer. How is it that both Jews and Gentiles, and what that means for you, how is it that everybody in here, regardless of your religious or spiritual upbringing, will be held accountable to God? Because we all know people in just this room right here. Some of you, you've known the Bible since you've been a little bitty kid. And some of you, you may be watching for the first time. You go, this is the first time I've ever heard the Bible. And yet God's going to judge all of us? Yeah. Well, how is that fair? How can God judge me when I don't have the Bible? Let's look at Romans chapter 2 and look at verses 12 through 13. Here's what Paul says. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now the first thing Paul wants to do is just lay down a biblical principle of God's judgment. I want you to write it down and then let me explain it. The first thing is this. Number one, only doers of the law will not be condemned. Only doers of the law will not be condemned. When you see the word law in this passage, just these verses, go ahead and put in your mind what Paul is referring to. He's referring to the law with a capital L, or we call it the law of Moses, the Mosaic law which God gave Moses at Mount Sinai. Anybody know what it includes? The Ten Commandments. Very good. So just if it helps you think of it like God gave the Ten Commandments in 
explicitly to his people Israel at, at Mount Sinai. So when we say that, you can say all who sin without the Ten Commandments, I'm just using the idea, will also perish without the Ten Commandments. Isn't that interesting? So the Mosaic Law contains the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments reveal the conduct that God approves of and what conduct is sin, what trespasses His will. Thus, those who have sinned under the law refers to who? Those who sin under the Ten Commandments is which group? The Jews. Very good. You're following with me this morning. They are the recipients of the Mosaic Law. So that next part of verse 12, it says, And all who are under the Ten Commandments, the Jews, will be judged by the law, the Ten Commandments. But here's what's interesting, and here's why he wants to put, point this out. It is a doer of the Ten Commandments that will be justified or approved right or declared right at God's judgment. As you will see, though, no one is justified by obeying the Ten Commandments. And I don't believe it's because it theoretically can't happen. It's that you and I cannot fulfill all that the Ten Commandments require in thought, word, and deed. We can't. Paul's point here, though, is to prove this. That possession of the law, hearing the Bible, hearing the Ten Commandments, means nothing. Just to hear it means nothing. It is perfect practice of the law that matters. And Paul's point, as you'll see, is that no one has practiced God's Word perfectly. No one. Christians, we argue over the display of the Ten Commandments and nativity scenes in public places. But what good does it do for you and I to argue if we don't believe them and keep them ourselves? We claim to be the recipients of the Bible. We claim to be the ones that have heard it. Where's our doing? Because just possessing it means nothing. There's no advantage to just hearing it. Do you hear me? There will be no profit to you today if you just hear what I have to tell you. No profit. You wasted your time. Was last Sunday the last time you picked up the Bible to read, study, and obey it? If that's the case, with gentleness and respect according to God's Word, you stand condemned already because the revelation of Himself is there available to you. There's nothing magical about possessing the Bible or sitting in the church to hear God's Word preach if you don't believe and obey it. We'll all perish. God's law can justify only when it's perfectly obeyed. Reading it, hearing it, taught and preached, studying it, none of these, not all of them together can justify or make you right before God. That word perish here refers to suffering the wrath, the righteous anger of God, and therefore experiencing eternal separation from God in hell. If you have not put it together yet, Paul is just edging that way, and he's going to get explicit in Romans chapter 3. None of us have kept God's word perfectly, and we are destined to burn in a sinner's hell. All of us. That's what the Bible 
teaches. If you are trusting in your good behavior to get you off, I'm here to let you know today, you will perish. You'll perish. I'm going to get to the good news, but you've got to hear the universal bad news first. All right? We all will perish. Now, let's look at the next two verses. How can God judge me if I don't have the Bible? Right? Look at verses 14 and 15. So, when Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. So you're sitting there and you go, I don't, I don't have the Bible. I wasn't brought up with a Christian family or church. I don't know anything about it. And here's how God deals with you. Number two, write this down. Your law is your conscience. Now, you've got to hear, hear it all out, okay? Listen to all that Paul says here. Your law is your conscience. Now, I differ on the, in the translation of the Christian Standard Bible at this point. It actually saddens me, all right? The Greek word by nature that, that we translate by nature comes between two clauses. And it can either modify... The, the first one, which is having, notice here in verse four, uh, 14, if you have the CSB that I have. So in Gentiles, who do not by nature have. Notice how there the Greek clause modifies the word have. In your other, almost all other English translations, if you have something different from mine, and it can go, the grammar can work either way, we'll say it like this. So in Gentiles, who, don't, who do not have nature, uh, excuse me, who do not have the law by nature do. Okay, so now by nature modifies the word, the verb do. Okay, I think that is the right rendering of the text. Okay, so it, go, it can go either way. It's a 50-50 split. And the way it works out theologically, just in case you know, if, if by nature modifies having, he's probably referring to believing, spirit-filled Gentile Christians. I think Paul has in mind Gentiles in general. Okay. So it needs to go with the word do. Now, just say that as a point so that you know why, okay? And here's what he goes on to do. He goes on to baptize, to put into Jewish and Christian terminology, the Greek concept of what's called the law of nature. Write it down. Write down the law of nature, okay? Now, what does this mean? The law of nature in the Greek mind, Okay, in the Gentile mind. Older theologians also called it the moral law. The moral law is the concept that all people possess a moral compass. Okay, that every person on the planet has some moral compass. It is not as comprehensive as the word of God, as revealed in his written word, but it suffices enough for people to know right from wrong, okay? Because of this, here's what you have to understand from a biblical perspective. The Bible sees even Gentiles having a law. By virtue of this compass, by virtue of having a conscience, the Bible recognizes them as accountable, 
All right? Now, we also don't need to confuse the moral or uh, the law of nature with what the conscience is. Now, let me show you this. The law of nature, this moral compass, is an objective standard. It stands outside of man. It is true regardless of any personal or other people's opinions. It's there. It exists. The conscience is different. It's not to be confused because sometimes we, we say them the same thing. They're not. The conscience is your inner witness that makes you aware when you violate or deviate from that moral law. That's the bad feeling. That's the thump, thump. Okay? Now, what you have to understand, while the moral law is true, objective, absolute, your conscience can become fallible. Your conscience can become distorted and die through neglect. Conscience, said an Indian, is a three-cornered thing in your heart. Just imagine a triangle sitting in your heart. And it stands still as long as you're doing good. But when you do something bad, it turns and it hurts a whole lot. If you keep on doing wrong, the corners wear off and it doesn't hurt anymore. And some of you, you know what, exactly what I'm talking about. You can behave in such a way for so long, there's no more thumping. Your conscience is seared. It's finished off. But that's the inner witness. That's what tells you when you have violated or deviated from the moral law of God. And then also this, don't confuse that conscience that God has given to you in your personality with your thoughts. Your thoughts are the ones that accuse or defend you. They whisper to you. The conscience is the inner mechanism that relates to us our deviation from the law of nature. Our thoughts comprise our memory that produces guilt or reassurance. Here's what I want you to think about. Every single one of us, I know it because the Bible is true, and then I know this from my own experience. We all have memories of things we wish we had never done. All of us do. you got things right now in your heart, and they produce shame and guilt. They're thoughts you carry around with you that you go, I wish I could be set free from remembering when I violated my conscience and the moral law. I wish I would have listened. We talk about regret, remorse, sorrow. These are the things that Paul's talking about. He's saying, you've experienced the sting of the law by virtue of your memory that you carry around with you with all the things you wish you'd never done or this, the things you wish you would have done. I wish I would have said something. Those are the things. And these memories, here's what you need to know. Just like the Ten Commandments serves as a record of what is sin, your memory serves as your record as what is sin. Isn't that amazing? Paul's point is whether the law is revealed from Sinai or it's given to you in a moral compass. We all, you and I, have a law to keep. And again, as you'll see, none of us has kept it. Let the person stand up and say, my conscience is clear. There is no such person. No such person. 
I appreciate what John Piper said. Isn't it remarkable that when we spend an evening isolated in front of our computer, addicted, as it were, to work or pornography or video games, the issue at the end of all of it is not the wonders of technology or science. The issue is this. How come, how can I come to God when I feel so dirty? And how can I come to my wife and my children with transparent love when my conscience is so defiled? Everybody has that sense of something's wrong with what I've done. And if you're not into computers, you pick your own sin. TV, romance novels, stock market pages, spirit-numbing music. We all have some kind of vice that when we walk away from it, we go, why am I doing this? It dirties my soul. So how can God judge me when I don't have the Bible? As we've seen, your law is your conscience. And then look at verse 16. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. This is a loaded statement. Number three, write this down. Your memory cannot be concealed. Your memory cannot be concealed. It's interesting, these hidden or secret things, the Greek word is kryptos. You cannot encrypt your memory. You cannot hide it. The day of judgment, the day, it's the day with the capital D, is God's final intervention in human affairs to punish sin. The resurrection of Jesus affirms that it will be Jesus. He will be the one who will judge us. I need you to catch this. Get this vividly in your mind. All of us will stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives. All of us. On that day when he returns as the glorious king of the earth, we all, you and I, will be held accountable to King Jesus, and it will result in either eternal condemnation in hell or eternal uh, blessedness in heaven. Now, we can conceal our sins from one another. Please understand, the the, the point of the passage today is not so that we stand up and tell everybody what's in our memories. (laughs) No use in doing that. We can conceal our sins from one another. We can deceive our own selves into thinking that somehow our sins are hidden from Jesus. And what Paul makes explicitly clear here, the day of Jesus' judgment will show you that you have hid nothing from him. You thought you have, but you've hid nothing. Here to me is what is so damning, listen to this, that on judgment day, when we sit there and we refuse to say we're sinners, you know what King Jesus will do sitting on his throne in in the courts of heaven? He'll do this. He'll produce your memory as a witness against you. Just play it back. Just their memory. Just their thoughts. You understand that? He doesn't have to go through the Ten Commandments with you. Your own conscience testifies against you. That's what's so amazing. Everybody will just stand there in silence and let your memory speak on your behalf. Everybody right now, I don't want my memory talking about anything I've done. I don't want those thoughts out. I don't want my conscience revealed that day. He can do this. You will be exposed. 
And here's what's so amazing. When those thoughts get finished showing and that memory's all depleted, you'll confess all along. You did know right from wrong. You did. With or without the Bible. You knew. So what? So what? What have you kept secret? Whatever you kept secret, I can tell you, that's probably where you've offended God and you've trespassed His law. What's under the floorboards of your heart? Well, Josh, nobody's perfect. That's our attitude. Nobody's perfect. We've all got stuff like that. That's what the Bible's saying. We've all got stuff like that. That's exactly what we're trying to teach you. According to the Bible, that perspective, nobody's perfect, will suffice on Judgment Day. It will not work. Our memories will be revealed and used as evidence against us on Judgment Day, and Judgment Day is coming. We all, you and I, need to settle out of court today. That's what we have the opportunity to do. We can take the plea deal. This is a beautiful thing. This is the good news. We can plead guilty now. And not wait till then. And ladies and gentlemen, plea now. Plea now. If you'll confess and admit that God is right, and you are wrong, and then by faith seize His Son, Jesus Christ, alone to receive the forgiveness of sin. You know what's so amazing about the gospel promise? He says this, He'll go as far as cleansing your conscience. He says, oh, first of all, I will remember their sin no more. You may remember it, but let me tell you, a more blessed thing is that God doesn't remember it. Where He goes, I can't bring it up. I don't know what you're talking about. And then to even know this, that all that behavior, the things that you've seared off in your conscience, Jesus can make clean again and inform with the Holy Spirit and make you a new person. This is all the things that Jesus can do for you. Listen to what Acts 10, 42-43 says. He commanded us, Jesus commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him. And through His name, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sin. No more memory of it. God does not hold it to your record. You may hold on to it, but He doesn't. Isn't that amazing? This is because the shed blood of Jesus, this is what we don't understand. The shed blood of Jesus is so precious and so perfect that God cannot get past the sight of Jesus' blood over your sin. He doesn't even, what sin are you talking about? I mean, that's the way he looks at it. I have my son's blood in view. It's gone. Listen to what else Jesus' blood does when He died on the cross for you. This is Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, He was perfect, completely obedient, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's what I love about it. Our conscience will accuse us. And the conscience is right. You're not worthy. You violated God's law. And here's what's so amazing is Jesus is blood and go, shh, 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 I've taken care of that. It's not that we're worthy. No, we also now are able to factor into our conscience. Jesus is worthy and He makes me confident to go and serve God. That's significantly different. You don't have to carry the burden and weight of sin in your conscience. You can go, yes, those things are true, but I serve a living Savior. You don't have to deal with it anymore. 
Hebrews 10.22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith, believing what Jesus has done for us, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christian, he's saying, come on. Don't, don't let that stuff hold you back any longer. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' shed blood and sacrificial death for our sins is so infinitely perfect that we no longer have to be saddled with an inward sense of personal guilt, shame, fear, or even embarrassment before God that keeps our hearts at a distance from Him. That's what Jesus has come to solve. He wants our hearts to draw close, go, come on. And I think, I think when our conscience is right, we go, but how can we? And we go, it's not because of anything you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. Come on. Come on. Isn't that beautiful? This is the gospel we declare to you. Your sins can be forgiven and you can come right on up to God. I like what Martin Luther, how he put it. Listen to this. This means that a man is not bitten by the recollection of his sins and is not disquieted by the fear of future punishment. We're not bitten by it any longer. We're not afraid of what God might do because it's already t- been taken care of. Do you understand that? We're free. We're free. Write this down. And this is kind of hard to think of because we may have never put the gospel in this way. But Jesus died for our memories. I actually think that's a wonderful thing. Jesus died for our memories. So don't conceal them but confess them to Him. Confess them to Him. He already knows. He already died for them. Just, hey, come clean about them. Jesus, this is what I've done. You know it. You know it. And I don't want to walk in it any longer. And He can set you free. That burden will roll off your shoulders and will never be seen again. The psalmist said, it's in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord kept a record of our sins. Oh, Lord, who could stand? Psalmist gets it. Nope. Nobody could stand. We see in Revelation, when that day comes, people who thought they could, they go, let the rocks fall on me. The ones who thought they could stand, they want to die. What we're recognizing is none of us can stand. I can't stand that on that day. If my memory was produced against me, I'm as good as gone. And same thing with everybody else. None of us can stand. But I like what the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, said. Oh, friends, if it does not make you tremble to think of these things, it ought to do so. These truths ought to startle us. But I'm afraid we hear them with small result. We have to deal with with an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, with one to whom all things are always present, the one who will conceal nothing out of fear or favor of any man's person, with one who will shortly bring the splendor of his omniscience and the impartiality of his justice to bear upon all human laws. God help us Wherever we rove and wherever we rest, to remember that each thought, word, and act of each moment lies in the fierce light which beats upon all things from the throne of God. 
I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. My first encouragement, my plea to you, my, my absolute begging is to plead guilty now. Because according to the Bible, trust me and the Word, we all will. <laughs> we all will. It's just a matter of time. We can do it in this age of grace and receive the forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God. Or we can do it when we stand before His great white throne judgment, confess our guilt, and be thrown into hell. Those are the two alternatives. And if you go, Josh, you're fear-mongering. I have no problem telling people, yes, you should be afraid of God in your sin. You should be. And here's the good news. God who loves you sent His only Son to shed His blood so that you can be forgiven, your sins remembered no more, and you can live a life with a clean conscience near to God. That's His love and compassion in the midst of judgment and mercy. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to teach you to pray. Jesus is not dead. (laughs) He is God. He hears our faults and whispers. And if you want to plead guilty to him now and by faith receive his forgiveness, would you repeat after me? Just pray this. Say, Dear Jesus, I confess. I admit that I am guilty. But I believe you love me. You came down for me. You lived a perfect life. And you shed your own blood to forgive me of all my sins. I believe God raised you from the dead. Please forgive me. Clean up my conscience. Remember my sins no more. And grant me eternal life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you prayed that prayer, The next step in your walk with the Lord in drawing near to Him is displaying that private confession and commitment publicly. And the way Jesus has commanded us to do that is through baptism. You witnessed it today. We have a confession. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes. You know for sure that if you die today, you spend eternity in heaven with Christ? Yes. We can have that kind of assurance. And baptism shows it. When you go under the water, you're saying, I believe Jesus died for my sin. And when you come up out of the water, you say, I believe believe Jesus rose again and has forgiven me and I'm going to live in a new life with him. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to do one of three things. You can either check off baptism on the back of that tear-off panel, drop it in in the offering box on your way out. Give me an opportunity just to talk to you about it. You're not signing up, just let me talk to you about it. You can text BELIEVE to our text and church number, all right? Or you can visit our website and go to the baptism section and fill out that form. Just let us talk to you about that next right step. The last thing that I want us to do is that if you're a believer, what I am so... Here's the amazing thing about our faith. We are still aware of our sin. You and I are. There is coming a glorious day where we're... God will wipe away every tear. I believe that includes every sense of sin, shame, and guilt that we've ever possessed. What we have to do now is walk in faith knowing that our sins are no no longer held against us. They're not. 
God does not hold a single thing against you if you're covered by Jesus' blood. And I want to read this prayer from Jane Austen that we as Christians can simultaneously be aware of our sin, aware of our sin, and yet still acknowledge the assurance of forgiveness by God. We can do both. Just listen to this. It says, look with mercy on the sins we have committed. And in mercy, make us feel them deeply, that our repentance may be sincere and our resolution steadfast of endeavoring against the commission of such in the future. Teach us to understand the sinfulness of our own hearts and bring to our knowledge every fault of temper and every evil habit in which we have indulged to the discomfort of our fellow creatures and the danger of our own souls. See, I believe Christians, we have the privilege of actually saying, God, search us, tell us what's in there, because we have the, notice how she prefaced everything, we have the mercy on the front end. (laughs) We know going into it, God's going to deal with us mercifully. So I'm going to implore you today, confess your sins in our time of reflection, and be assured of God's forgiveness and His mercy that covers them all. Will you pray that? Stacey, as you begin. listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.